everyone to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the real horror show, Faculty of Horror. I'm Alex. And I'm her best droog, Andrea. I asked you about this film. Uh-huh. You know, would it make sense on the Faculty of Horror to do a Clockwork Orange? And, you know, you're my perhaps dearest and bestest of droogs. Uh-huh. And you were like, oh, well, I have a really deep and long history with this film. Yeah, let's do it. And it's incredible when you've known someone for this long, like over 10 years, and it's like this other little door into this pathway of you I never knew. Is that how it feels? It Yes, I like to think I know everything about everyone. I mean, deep and enduring, it was kind of one of those movies that was a really big deal to me for a moment of my life. And that was a definitely a gateway, not only into horror, but into how I approach horror academically that we'll get into in a bit. But I have to say that I haven't thought about it in a really, really long time until you brought it up. And it came back to me um, as a film that I really wanted to rewatch because I think I've seen this film once before. Mm-hmm. probably when I was in my teens. And I don't remember how I saw it. I probably rented it. And I remember kind of thinking, oh, it's a movie from the 70s. Mm-hmm. How bad could it be? And then finishing the film, and I just remember the feeling that I had was that, oh, film can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that was like, oh, I have this very strong sense memory of this film, but I've never gone back to revisit it. And uh, it was when we were doing a Suicide Club, mm-hmm. like one of the glam rock guys kind of has a droog-esque thing. And it just popped back into my mind yeah. as I wanted to revisit it. And if I can revisit something and make it part of uh, the work, then yeah. that's, that's ticks all around. I have seen this film so many times. I had the VHS cassette and it was, it was a point in my life, you know, it was pre-YouTube. There was no Netflix, so you had your movies that you liked, and then there was TV. And so I just would always put this on, no matter what I was doing. If I was reading, if I was doing something else, if I was playing Tetris on my Game Boy, if I was, like, whatever. And so I've seen it so, so, so many times. So it was really wild to come back to because I felt like I knew every beat, but at the same time seeing it, you know, at age 40 as opposed to age 18, I saw it really differently. So it was a really fun exercise That's wild because that, that you know, a 20 year gap at any point in history is a big gap. Yeah. And then you look at the last, I don't know, five to eight years that we've had. Yeah. And it feels even more intense, especially going from 18 to 40 is um, a huge jump. Yes. I imagine because I'm younger. But it's also so fucked up to look back and just be like, I saw this film a lot at a tender age and it's a pretty frigged up film. I know. And my reaction was, oh, I've seen it now. And I walk away. Yeah, yeah. No, I watched it again and again and again. So my history with this film started was when I was in OAC. Oh, yes. And older Canadian listeners will remember what OAC was. It was just kind of a year tacked on after grade 12 in high school that was intended to prepare you for university. I was the first year of Ontario High School that did away with the OAC. Yeah, I think I was one of the last. I graduated in 2001. But OAC was kind of cool because it was the first time that you sort of had, or in my experience, it was my first time kind of choosing electives. Like you got to kind of choose a stream. You needed so many OAC credits and you could choose to spend them all in English and you could choose to spend them in the sciences and maths, which I did not. Uh, Even music was an OAC credit. There were two different French OAC credits and I was really good in French, so I took both of those so I could get away from, like, biology and chem and whatever. But a a hallmark of the OAC curriculum was you had to do an independent study. I love independent studies! (laughs) 
You're the best for all of us nerds. You just get to like pick a topic and nerd out on it. So you still had those, even though you didn't have. I did. I think they they morphed them into, or I had teachers that kind of put them into some grade eleven and grade Mm twelve classes. They were the best. And then I actually got to do an independent study unit uh, in my university undergrad. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like a full credit. I had to put on a play, so it was a lot of fucking work. But uh, yeah, like I guess I had a list of books that I could choose from, and a Clockwork Orange jumped out at me because I had a weird awareness of A Clockwork Orange and its iconic poster. I knew that there was a Stanley Kubrick film, and by that time, I was already obsessed with The Shining, and so I was like, uh, duh. Do you know what my first uh, encounter with Clockwork Orange was? Tell me. Uh, The Simpsons, Treehouse of Horror. Oh, my God. Bart dresses as Alex. Uh Uh-huh. Like, one of the early ones, and I was just thought, wow, Bart's dressed so cool. I wonder what that's about. And now, looking back, I was like, bold choice. Yeah. It permeated mainstream culture just in its iconography in certain ways. And so I was aware of it and then I was obsessed with it. And then I remember uh, being an undergrad and I had the poster up on my wall. And uh, I remember the poster just having like such giant holes in the corners because I had tacked it up everywhere I moved and that poster went with me everywhere. But like what I really glommed onto was the idea of so-called low art i.e. like this violent dystopian crime novel to tackle heady themes of morality and choice. You know, like we'd covered Frankenstein and Dracula in high school, but A Clockwork Orange was so much spicier, even as a book. And that would come to inform my academic interest later in horror and culture, that horror being low art and yet being like very important and ideological. And that tension between art and violence, like it's not only present in the film, it's ingrained in its legacy in how it was banned all the controversy around it so i thought it was a great choice for an episode i'm thrilled go me so what were your initial thoughts i think what was interesting for me this time around watching it was that i only had like really kind of vague fleeting memories of certain scenes Mm -hmm. in the film you know the rape at the house in the kind of first movement of the film then of course the eyes in the second part and then also um i oddly really strongly remembered the younger strongman oh yeah at the end Uh uh he just kind of stayed with me and um sexy beefcakey manservant strange you know fun fact that actor played the body of darth vader in the first three Star Wars films, like voiced by James Earl Jones, but he was, uh, he was the body. Good for him. (laughs) I love that. Um, I didn't realize Darth was so beefy. I know. Those cloaks are hiding some serious gams. Pick me up and carry me around. (laughs) Um, and, and so I was almost like, I was excited to revisit it. And I, I just really had that sense memory of film is dangerous. And yeah, like, what yeah. am I going to see? And I definitely came away, as we'll talk about, that Clockwork Orange is very much a black comedy satire. Oh, yeah. But what's interesting, I think, for our purposes today is that the black comedy and satire is done through the language of realistic horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have elements like home invasion, rape, assault torture, Mm -hmm. all of these things that we were, you know, alluding to, you know, not that long ago in our torture porn episode. And I think it's a really interesting film and text that can use the anxieties of a society to flip them on their head Mm -hmm. and really kind of, if you're smart enough and you're with it enough and you actually watch the whole goddamn movie, Mm -hmm. 
you can kind of come away with a lot more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that to me is really exciting. And I also think it's an interesting litmus test for a lot of people Mm -hmm. um, of, you know, if you've seen it and you just go, Oh, that's a very violent film. Mm -hmm. Is it, or is Is it all you got out of it about violence through violence? Right. And and like such a mainstream film, right? Like it's Stanley Kubrick, but like, whereas The Shining, people are like, oh yeah, that's his horror movie, A Clockwork Orange, because it's got that literary British pedigree. It's kind of in a league of its own. And what I find interesting is when I was looking at a little bit of the production history that like The Shining, it kind of came after like Kubrick had taken a hit Uh off of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was very expensive and didn't do as well. And he was trying to pull his Napoleon film together, which he never did get to make. And uh, it was making this kind of bridge film Mm -hmm. in between them. And, you know, after the failure of uh, Barry Lyndon, Mm -hmm. again, perceived quote unquote failure of Barry Lyndon, um, he made something he thought would be really popular with The Shining. Yeah, that's right. For me, rewatching it in 20 2020, like, it's not that the film hasn't aged well. It's just that discourses of free will and free speech has changed so much. Like, it's become the... It's become the chief complaint of the ultra-privileged, like the cause celebre of the white male edgelord. And so I didn't have any sense of that when I was watching this when I was 17. I had no concept of privilege, so that never informed my analysis. And now watching it, I was blown away by how silly it was, mm-hmm. how funny it was. And you know, like I found it a lot harder to see Alex as a pawn of a totalitarian government, which was the bulk of my independent study, because my independent study was, of course, on the book and not on the movie, but of course, I still loved the movie. And further, like to talk about a white man's ability to choose when Roe versus Wade is being overturned, like just seemed pretty fucking absurd to me. But, you know, here we are. I, I don't think that that film hasn't aged well. I just, the discourse has changed a lot. And I didn't remember it being so silly. There was so much playful absurdity, Mr. Deltoid and his news and the uptight prison warden. I find it an odd fun watch. And maybe that's because I've got the nostalgia and I'm desensitized to some of the shocking. Or or maybe it's because 2001 was such a not fun watch. (laughs) Well, I I think you're right. Like, I think you're kind of right across the board. There is a bit of that test of like, there is this violent stuff, but there's also this very silly stuff. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to pick up on? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I, I was, you know, still quite shocked that, you know, we had that sped up threesome scene. And I was like, oh, only it was that quick. (laughs) I was roaring watching that this time. I was just like, I never really before noticed how they would get up and get dressed and then get pulled back into it, which I just found so funny. And I love that Alex picks them up in like his Willy Wonka coat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's quite the look. Mm -hmm. It's quite the look. And then I think also for me, it's interesting to revisit the film that made Malcolm McDowell a figure yes. in film. And he's so great in it. He's so good. And I'm not sure it's going to come up later. So I just want to mention one of the things that really struck me on, you know, this rewatch was how brilliant his physicality is yeah. in the fight scenes to the sex scenes, everything he does so like when he's dancing and singing in the rain mm-hmm. and the rapes. Like he's, 
fancy. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. He makes really beautiful lines. Like it, it's a Kubrick film, so you know that he probably took a thousand takes of everything to get it right. But the end result is, yeah, poetic. Apparently, they didn't. Uh, Kubrick uh, tended to feel that he got it right on the first take a lot of the time. When it came to Malcolm, yes. But I had a note that scene where he uh, assaults that woman, the writer's wife. Yes. Yeah. Apparently, two actresses walked off the set because they were like, "We can't do this anymore." And and Malcolm McDowell was the one to be like, "We can't keep shooting. I can't hit her anymore. I just can't." Um. So yes, he's he's a punishing motherfucker, but he does uh, he does play his favorites, right? His yeah. leading men. He tends to be like, "You're so good." And I and I also have like a, a strange kind of relationship with Malcolm McDowell because my mom is a really big Malcolm McDowell fan, but I doubt really? she's ever seen Clockwork Orange. What? So what does she love him in Caligula? <laughs> Uh, uh, she was a really big fan of um, some of his other British films, like Oh Lucky Man, which I believe came out in 1973, which is also kind of like a strange fantasy movie. Uh-huh. And another film that I mentioned last year in our Jack the Ripper episode, Time After Time, where Malcolm McDowell plays H.G. Wells, yeah. and he time travels to San Francisco present day in the 70s or 80s to to go chase Jack the Ripper, who has yeah. also time traveled. Uh, and so my mom watched that. It's good. Like, well, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I hold judgment. It's but I remember idea. it being kind of like appropriate levels of spooky fun for a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, my mom liked him through those things. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, for us, he was in the Rob Zombie Halloween films as Dr. Loomis. Mm-hmm. To me, he was the bright spot of those films. And then more recently, he is currently starring on a Canadian broadcast corporation sitcom. Uh, the people who made Shit's Creek, they produced it. They've got in a new creative team and, and they're making a, a sitcom set in the Maritimes of Canada called Son of a Critch. And Malcolm McDowell plays the grandpappy of this. And it is the most saccharine, lame, to use one of Andrea's theories of like that she's brought up on this show before, cultural cringe. Yeah. I cringe as a Canadian deeply in my soul against the whole show. And then you got like Malcolm McDowell on top of it and you're just like, Oh, I guess times are tight, buddy. Yeah, but he's been in a ton of stuff. And especially in the last several years, he's come up a lot in pretty B-horror movies. But he's not choosing his roles very selectively, but he always gives it his all. He is also a fixture on the convention circuit for horror conventions, which I always respect that, like, that they realize that they still have a career because the fans recognize their power and their appeal and, and, and doing conventions, you know. And they pay fucking well. But still, a lot of a lot of actors of his caliber would be like, ah, this is this is something I'm doing right now that I'm not super proud of and I don't want well, to. Well, I also think he's I, I get the sense that he's a bit of a ham. Oh yeah. Because when I was looking up making of Clockwork Orange, you know, Clockwork Orange, then and now, like all of those kind of videos on YouTube, he's in like every fucking one. Yeah. Like I think it probably costs more to not have him in one of them. <laughs> I feel like he just wanders onto sets and is like, Are you talking about Clockwork Orange today? Nope. Okay, I'll come back. <laughs> like he's in all of them, and and I appreciate that. Isn't it? I would rather that than someone you know sticking their nose up at it. Totally. But he seems very funny. I agree. Yeah, I would have a drink with him. Me too. Yeah. Let's talk about this film. Stanley Kubrick's 1971 crime drama literary what the fuck? Très controversial. A Clockwork Orange. There was me. That is Alex. And my three droogs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Corova milk bar, trying to make up our Razudocs what to do with the evening. The Corova milk bar sold milk plus, 
which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. <laughs> the evening's the great time, isn't it, Alex Bond? <laughs> He's enterprising, aggressive, young, bold, vicious. He'll do. Who on earth could that be? Now it was lovely music that came to my aid. A bit of the old Ludwig van. I hope to God it'll torture you to madness. Food, all right. Great, sir. Great. Try the wine. Gorgeousness and gorgeousity made flesh. Set in a dystopian future Britain, young Alex Delarge is a juvenile delinquent. He blows off school to lead his gang of droogies, Georgie, Dim, and Pete, as they get high off milk laced with hallucinogenic drugs and wreak ultraviolent havoc on their community. Fighting with a rival gang, breaking and entering, rape and robbery are all a typical evening for Alex. One night, Alex's droogs suggest that they start aiming for more lucrative theft gigs, which infuriates Alex to the point where he disciplines them brutally. That night, after attacking a wealthy cat lady at a yoga retreat, his gang turn on him and he is charged with murder and sentenced to 14 years. Now in the prison system, Alex volunteers for an experimental procedure that'll get him out within a week. The procedure, called the Ludovico Technique, is a chemical aversion therapy where he's made to feel sick upon witnessing acts of sex and violence. One of the videos includes a score by his favorite composer, Beethoven, and he reacts to that music with the same nausea. Now free and a highly politicized figure, he returns home to find that his parents have rented out his room. Out on the street, he runs afoul of everyone he had hurt previously, including former droogs, Georgie and Dim, who are now police, and an old writer whose wife died after Alex's attack. The writer initially sees Alex as a political weapon against the government, but then recognizes Alex as his wife's killer. He locks Alex up and plays Beethoven's Ninth Symphony loudly from downstairs. Alex attempts suicide but survives, completely recovered from the Ludovico conditioning. The Minister of the Interior apologizes to him and convinces him to join a campaign for the government to recover from all the bad press. The film ends with Alex fantasizing about sex while a voiceover declares, I was cured, all right. It feels weird to say Alex so much and not be talking to or about you. I mean, he and I have very parallel life stories. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I feel like this film almost wastes a bit of time in absurdity. Like, I get why it's there, but I feel like when I was putting together the synopsis, I was like, this happens amidst long scenes of silly. Yeah, I, I mean, I attempted 
to read the book for this episode. God bless. I I got maybe five pages in. Yeah. And I read, uh, it was one of those copies that has an intro written by someone very smart who probably went to Cambridge and or Oxford. And um, they were comparing Burgess's literary style to James Joyce. And I was like, oh, no. Because I fucking, I remember in my undergrad, my minor in English lit, and I tried to read Joyce so many times. And I just always fell back on Spark Notes. Mm-mm. So I gave up. But luckily, someone did an ISU on it. <laughs> I didn't go back to the book very much for my research, sadly. This is a movie podcast, Alex. But I do have some notes about the differences between the film and the book. Of course, we have to start with that final chapter, the chapter that Kubrick referred to as the lost chapter, because when this book was published in North America, it was excised because it's dumb. Talk more about that. Burgess liked the film, but he was concerned that this final chapter, which contained redemption for Alex, it had him growing up and maturing and realizing that a life of ultraviolence was, you know, silly and child's play and behind him. You know, he didn't blame Kubrick for that. He blamed it on the American publishers who excised it from the book and, you know, his relationship with Kubrick uh, soured later when the film didn't go over well at all. But, you know, to me, that would have really changed everything. I, I'm grateful that that final chapter isn't in there because I don't think redemption informs the story or its message or does any service to the movie at all. No, and it, and such a confident film and narrative. I mean, it's a Kubrick film, so we're, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a confident film no matter what. But I think, you know, it had to end on those notes of like, Alex kind of once again, maybe starting to game the system Uh Um, or like there's a new, you know, status quo that he's going to try to navigate. And that I think is more exciting than kind of limping towards the end kind of ending. And I mean, if I understand, you know, Kubrick's ending of The Shining versus King's ending of The Shining, it's kind of similar. Like he ends it with Jack Mm -hmm. still trapped in some way at the Overlook. And Alex is still trapped within this uh, strange system. And he's gone from being an outside force of power to an internal, like lower source of power. And now what is he? What is he going to be? Yeah. And I feel like if you're going to engage with this this film on the level where the book is like, this is all about free will and freedom and what it means to be a human being. I feel like for him to just outgrow his ultraviolence is it's tantamount to just, it was all a dream. It was all a joke. It was all the fancy of a young ruffian. And it actually has nothing to do with human nature, unless you're arguing that human nature is to be a piece of shit until you see the light. I don't know. I don't like it. Your friend Adam Naiman, however. Oh, yes. Did you see that article? I started reading it and then I was like, no, I, I want to stay with my own thoughts. Okay. So okay. tell me what you think about I it. I checked it out. It was an interesting article because he was essentially saying, like, how does this film hold up in the age of cancellation? You know, controversial films and controversial figures are treated very differently now. And I guess uh, A Clockwork Orange had just come out on Netflix at the time, mm-hmm. which, which made it uh, a moment. And I wish 
she went a little bit deeper. The uh, the article's a little bit short, um, but it did get my brain firing in some directions that I wound up doing more research. But he wrote that omitting the final chapter, quote, cheapened the material. That's interesting. It is interesting. I disagree, but it is an interesting thought. So other differences with the book and the film, you know, PR deltoid, as I already mentioned, who is Alex's kind of like juvie parole officer guy. He is portrayed with some moral authority in the book, whereas in the movie, he's a complete weirdo we can't take seriously, possibly a pedophile. Who knows? In the novel, uh, Alex murders a fellow inmate who is sexually harassing him. And for that, he is selected for the Ludovico Mm -hmm. technique rather than volunteering in the movie. Uh, In the novel, he drugs and rapes two 10-year-olds rather than that consensual threesome. Uh, Granted, he's supposed to be about 15 in the book, whereas, you know, in the film, it's unspecified. But the fact that Deltoid is like, you're about to be tried as an adult if you don't stop fucking around. I read it as like older teens, but then uh, also at the time, Malcolm McDowell was kind of in his mid-late 20s. Yeah, he was 29. it's, It's kind of... Mm-hmm. Obfuscates age in a right. way. And then, you know, there's the title, A Clockwork Orange. A Clockwork Orange, in the book, that was the book that the activist author was working on. And um, the movie never shows it. And some critics definitely complained that, you know, the movie doesn't explain its title. Perhaps the movie doesn't earn its title because it's not shown within that context. But I think the title's pretty obvious. I think so, too. I mean, I do have a quote here that I wanted to share from Anthony Burgess, where it goes into why he came up with the term Clockwork Orange. But I also wanted to share, I was um, telling my dad that we were going to do this episode, Ah. and he was like, oh, that's going to be great. What a great idea. I can't wait to listen. Blah, 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 blah. So, hi, Dad and Mom, if you guys are listening. Um, But he was saying, we were talking about the title, and he's like, it's such an evocative image. And when he was kind of working in, like, advertising in one of his many, like, jobs as he was getting started, Started, he uh, developed this image that was um, for like, I was saying it was like, dad's probably yelling at whatever computer they're listening to this on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to say like, for argument's sake, it was like a lemonade okay. and it was a clock and a lemonade. Okay. And he was just like, he was like, yeah, the clients loved it. And it would kind of play off of then Anthony Burgess's novel, Neat. which was becoming its own thing. But for Clockwork Orange, the term, Burgess said it came from Cockney rhyming slang. Uh-huh. Uh, he said, you know, it was this term he heard queer as a clockwork orange and he heard it in a pub before world war ii for anyone who doesn't know cockney rhyming slang it originated in the east end of london in the 19th century and it was a way to allow criminals to communicate with each other while avoiding police listening in yeah Um, freely but privately exactly um so you can find lots of websites that break it all down that give you new lingo but for a quick example um Apple or apples means stairs. And this comes from the rhyming of apples and pears. So if you drop the rhyming part of it, then the sentence would then become, I'm going up the apples. Oh, yeah. Fuck. It sounds tricky. That sounds like cognitively arduous. This is why I'm not cut out for a life of crime. (laughs) In 1972, on the TV program Camera 3, Anthony Burgess said, in regards to the term clockwork orange, I've implied the junction of the organic, the lively, the sweet. In other words, life, the orange, and the mechanical, the cold, the disciplined. I brought them together in this kind of oxymoron, this sweet, sour word Mm -hmm. that helped me kind of 
I think, understand the term. It's, I love it. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the film is, like, the story, the book and the film is full of contradictions and opposites. We've got wholesome milk laced with hallucinogenics. We've got this classy art sculpture of an obscene phallus. Beethoven, high art loved by hooligans, singing in the rain while raping someone. And then a, a Clockwork Orange is, of course, uh, you know, like you said, the mechanical versus the organic. Yeah, you know, it works. I don't think we needed to see that it was the writer's novel to understand that. And then the last difference that I want to note is that in the novel, Alex is conditioned against all music and not just Beethoven's ninth. Um, so, you know, I find a lot of these differences to be in service to the narrative. Yeah. No big deal. But I think it's also important to note a couple other possible outcomes for the film. Um, I think probably most famously Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones were attached to Star at one point, or that was the idea with yeah. Mick Jagger playing Alex. And, and then, Ken Russell directed. And Ken Russell with Oliver Reed as Alex. I think that is so fascinating because I almost feel like it's an awareness that obviously this film could not have been made any other time than the 70s when and, you know, filmmakers were busting taboos and making art that was really fucked up. I'm not totally clear on the timeline of, of all of these things, but like, I can't imagine Mick Jagger and like, or, or overall, all the Rolling Stones making a Clockwork Orange as like fucking Altamont happened. Oh, yeah. Like, how fucked up would that be? You're right. I forgot about that. It's around that time. I mean, Ken Russell has has the wildness, and Oliver Reed definitely has the menace, but I think I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I think for me, Kubrick had the discipline to let things within the scene kind of run wild, mm -hmm. but I feel like you needed that kind of steady hand to just like be like, here's this plot, here's how we're going to navigate it, and I'm going to give you like a cinematic language with which to understand it. Yeah. Even if you don't pick it up on the first watch or the second watch or whenever. And I feel like Ken Russell, even though I have a lot of respect for him um, and his filmmaking style, it just would have been a bit like too much. Yeah, it would have been complete chaos. And I think he would have lost so much of what they wanted you to take away. Yeah, maybe. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about it, and it, it didn't really come up initially in my notes, but I'm I'm always curious about a dystopian future, especially a near dystopian future, not like a hundred years in the future, like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a decade or so. Mm -hmm. And from what I was reading, the film book essentially kind of takes place in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of conjecture about is, you know, did England become a failed communist state or regime, um, as alluded to with the Russian slang? You know, is this, you know, with the new government coming in, as we see with the Minister of the Interior, is this the rise of a new authoritarian regime? And then there were kind of these other elements that I was thinking a lot about, and it's the public and then the private space. Mm. Um, and I just thought the scene where Alex kind of walks through like the lobby of his apartment mm -hmm, building mm -hmm. and it's in like disrepair and he's just kind of kicking it. And to me, it speaks to, you know, just these uh, social systems that are falling apart. Whereas, you know, even when we get to these moments of horror with um, the writer and his wife and then the cat lady, uh, those are beautiful homes. Mm -hmm. And that's so certainly... A certain class of people is doing real well. Mm -hmm. The rest of them, 
maybe not so much. Yeah. What a weird, wild dystopia. It's almost hard to imagine. I picked up on that too, that Alex's house, like there is art on the walls that has been defaced with obscenity, which is such a, like a stark, it's not just that the place is in disrepair, but they tried to make it look nice and it's fucked and everything's busted. Um, that gang fight with Billy Boy is in like this disused, dilapidated theater. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like it really kind of points to a condemnation of like the arts, not so good, not doing so well in this dystopian future. The kids aren't all right. The rich are richer, the poor are poorer. Like it almost doesn't matter what happened in between from now and then, because we hurtled toward that reality anyway. Ick. Yeah. It's, I think, a bit sobering when you realize this dystopian future is very close to, if not completely, our current situation. That's right. And it, I don't see that changing. And so, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to be like, oh shit, you know, they didn't have the internet, but shit still got really fucked up. <laughs> and indeed, part of the reason that the book and the film employed this NADSAT vernacular, but uh, NADSAT comes from the suffix of Russian numerals from 11 to 19. So it's essentially the teens. Oh, and it refers to both the language that they're speaking and that subculture themselves. And Burgess, who was a linguist and a musician, opted to invent this slang that was very fluid and kind of, you know, I feel onomatopoeia in it. I didn't struggle to understand it just because it was so, it was always used in context and it's narrated um, so competently that I figured it out, you know? Well, good for you. <laughs> but the use of novel slang and fashion and furniture in the film was to keep it from being quickly outdated mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, teen slang and fashion changes all the time. So as bizarre as their outfits look, I think the reason it's so outlandish is, is to kind of give it that timeless, futuristic, this could be any time. And as you mentioned, the slang has a heavy Russian influence, uh, leading some critics to perceive it as containing communist themes. And then there's the fact that the Ludovico technique is basically a Pavlovian conditioning theory, and Ivan Pavlov was a Russian behaviorist. So... There's definitely the specter of the Soviet Russia in there. Mm-hmm. Fucking specter of the Soviet Russian now. In Soviet Russia, Nad Satsu. So as I alluded to before, this this film had a very storied release. It was rated X upon its American release in 1972. Kubrick removed 30 seconds of sex from two scenes to obtain an R rating. And it was released uncut in the UK until the trial of 14-year-old murderer brought up the film. So I feel like we've talked about so many examples of this where life imitates art and then life points its finger at art. And so, uh, you know, this was no different. The Kubricks had protesters outside their home. They received death threats, etc., leading the director to ask Warner Brothers to withdraw it from British release in 1973. And then it was really difficult to find the film in the UK for 27 years, and it was only upon Kubrick's 1999 death that it was released on VHS and DVD, which was when it fell into my waiting arms. And let me tell you, that independent study would have been shit if I didn't have the film to add to it. And and I, uh, I discovered it was only added to the National Film Registry for its cultural significance in 2020. Yeah, that's wild. Along with Shrek and the Blues Brothers. <sighs> <laughs> Way to go, Clockwork Orange. Our culture is so fucking stupid. I know. But anyways, lots and lots of controversy. Big ass headache for Kubrick. And uh, yeah, I didn't realize it was hard to find prior to when I discovered the story and the movie at the same time. But I think that's why there was kind of a peak 
in this field. Like it had existed for decades uh, prior to it hitting peak popularity as a cult film. Yeah, I think that kind of lore of this film, you know, was made by this, you know, celebrated director, this iconic director with these iconic moments, an iconic story, and that you can't get your hands on it. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, breeds that anxiety about like, I gotta have it. Yep. It delivers the goods, as does the devils, you know, like there's movies that you can't see for a good reason sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes sense why the government would not want people to see this film and to kind of make it into this boogeyman of like, it's too evil to see. It's too much. It criticizes us. But if you've got, you know, generally speaking, two brain cells to rub together and, you know, you are prepared for what you're about to see, you can realize, oh, it's actually saying other things than just showing you violence. Right. So as I was watching the film, I was reminded of a British literary movement that... I believe I actually did an ISU on. Aha! Oh my God, I can't believe we're saying thank you, Ontario Public Education. You did good. Yeah. Um, finally pays off, you know, 20 odd years later with a <laughs> podcast. Um, but it was, a, it's a British literary movement called The Angry Young Men. And it began in 1956 with a play by one John Osborne called Look Back in Anger. And the term angry young man was conceived by the Royal Court Theater where it was performed and it was put out by their press office. Mm -hmm. And then the British media began to seize upon it and began to apply it to other things. Now, the angry young man is young, hetero, able-bodied, white dude who is pissed off at the state of the world. Listen, it's a cliche now, but back then, back then, 1956, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was, especially within the British system, he was railing against the social constructs, the class system, um, all of these things that were being forced upon them. And then in a post-World War II world that the government wasn't fixing things as fast as, you know, they wanted to or they promised. And they were in this really stagnant era and they were just pissed off with their lot in life because you know what? The future didn't look great. Mm -hmm. And they were expected to do all of these things. And they're expected to have a family and be happy and do all of this. And it just never panned out. And so a lot of um, this particularly look back in anger at the play uh, began with this tradition of what they call kitchen sink dramas. So it's not drama in a castle or in a stately home. It is in a rundown apartment. Mm -hmm. And it is a man and his wife and he's just like pissed off and he's fucking angry and the politicians don't understand him and it's just not working out. And I think, again, this sounds like a cliche now. Mm -hmm. Back then, it was scandalous for someone to say, actually, I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. I'm not okay with any of this. And I feel like I'm being forced into it. Mm -hmm. So it's funny kind of going back to it. I was, you know, have that initial like, oh boy. But now I'm like, no, it's, we all have this instinct when we're put into life and we're just kind of pushed into the world. And then you go, wait, no, this isn't right. And you kind of start, you feel like you're crawling up the walls trying to change it. The angry young man movement moved into, you know, books, uh, moved into poetry. It moved into all of these different spheres and it burned really hot and bright for a few years like any good movement does. Mm -hmm. Um, So the kind of commonality of this movement was that 
the writers were all young British male. Uh, they were disillusioned and dissatisfied with their products and the future of their country. Uh, they were really against the class system, which was super strong in England. And uh, their politics were pretty left-leaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were usually from the lower and working classes. And a lot of their critiques had to do with the upper classes. And this was a time when, you know, more and more people were entering university and getting educated and just being like, okay, got the training. I've read all this stuff. I understand things. Mm-hmm. And now I'm being like oppressed through different means. Yeah. And there was also the sense that, you know, the country just wasn't changing and it wasn't adapting and it wasn't responding to the needs of the people quickly enough. So this, you know, starts in 1956 and it goes on for a few years. There's other people like Kingsley Amos, uh, Philip Larkin, um, who are all part of this movement and there's infighting and there's best friends. It's great. Like it's a really dishy time in like British literary circles. Uh, And then you've got Clockwork Orange, the book which was released in 1962. Mm-hmm. And it kind of feels like without a direct connection to angry young men, Clockwork Orange kind of feels like the end of the movement. At best, the angry young man movement felt like a call to arms for social change. Mm-hmm. And at worst, it feels feckless and whiny. But through Alex, Burgess, and then by extension Kubrick, is kind of able to game out the multiple options at hand. There is a lack of regard for social order attempting to corrupt the system. And then ultimately being corrupted by the system, but then maybe gaming it all back. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get so that your protagonist kind of gets back into bed with the system in potentially maybe a nefarious way. I think that the cyclical mirror narrative of A Clockwork Orange feels like a commentary on youth movements, that any kind of movement can become corrupted and absorbed and assimilated Mm -hmm. into something larger. And while it can start with really good intentions, it kind of just either peters out or it becomes, you know, um, part of mainstream media and then we're just absorbed into it. And, you know, one of the things that I find is so interesting about angry young men is that the angry young men became okay middle-aged dudes. Like they all just kind of, some of them went, you know, to the right in their politics. A lot, most of them just went center. Yeah. They still produced a lot of work. Some of it is still really good. But, you know, I think it's that testament to as we age, the different needs of our time and what we have to give become so different than when we're young. And sure. I find that was so interesting with Clockwork Orange is that we don't know why Alex is violent. It's because he can be violent. Mm-hmm. It, he just is violent. It's There's not like an inciting incident where we get to see into his little like brain of like, this is why I am violent. He just is. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I on the rewatch again, I was like, is this edgelordy? Is this incel-y? Is this like, how do I feel about this? And certainly I read several articles, you know, one that I want to talk about in a bit where there was a lot of pearl clutching about, you know, we are meant to see through Alex's point of view and we are meant to view him as the victim, whereas, you know, these women are actually the victim. And I was like, are we or are we laughing at this along with Alex? Because let me tell you, my heckles get up easy when it comes to this angry young man. And when I think of, you know, that Michael Douglas movie falling down, like, boo-hoo. Like when I was watching The Joker, I could barely get through it because it was so angry white male. And yet Alex, he's not angry. No, he's not angry. He's just evil. And there is this apathy toward his violence that makes it 
chilling and I guess maybe it dehumanizes him to the point where I felt like I wasn't seeing through his eyes and I wasn't seeing him as the victim. He was, you know, our catalyst, but not our moral compass and not our gaze and not our perspective. And indeed, whenever he was upset and crying, I felt like the movie kind of, you know, would play these violins and laugh at him when he's talking to his parents. What have you done with all my own personal things? Oh, well, that was all took away, son. By the police. New regulations, see, about compensation for the victims. What about Basil? Where's my snake? Oh. Well, he. He met with. like an accident, huh? away what's going to happen to me then i didn't feel a whole lot of sympathy for him i didn't feel a whole lot of emotion from him other than when he's feeling sorry for himself yeah and i think that's why like there was such this purity to this angry young man movement that felt like there is an opportunity to change something. We've got these young writers and they're ready to say something and they've got the talent to do it. And then it just kind of peters out mm -hmm. and it feels like almost any movement. And you just like, you've got the people and you're going to say something and then you say it. And sometimes it does move the needle. And we're always trying to be like, let's follow that needle movement. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's like, even now I'm like, okay, it's time. It's time for Gen Z's to step in. Oh yeah. I'd no longer consider myself an angry young yeah. feminist. I'm too tired for that shit. Yeah. I'm just like bitter and crusty. Yeah. Like I can't make all the protests anymore. No. It's for TikTok. It hurts my back. <laughs> but I think like that kind of satirization of that youthful energy and mm -hmm, vigor mm -hmm. feels so present in Clockwork Orange. Yeah. And I find it really interesting that Clockwork Orange, the book came out so close to this movement of angry young men. And, and I saw a few pieces that kind of tie Clockwork Orange to it and some that just didn't mention it at all. And so I don't think it's an overt, like, yes, this is the end of the angry young man movement. I think it's just something that on its own signaled that there is a discourse change. Sure. And of course, like social change was happening then and it's happening now and it's happening faster now. And I think we were more panicked about it before, you know, like the scenes uh, where the vagrant or whatever, mm. like kids today and kids today and have no respect. Like we talk a lot about intergenerational anxiety in this podcast, but that was a very specific time. So when you're setting things in a dystopian future where the youth are post-angry young men. And I think Clockwork Orange is so interesting because if angry young men are angry at the systems they're in, Clockwork Orange is mocking the systems they're in. That's right. And I think especially with the, the characters of Dim and Georgie, they become police. Yes. They go from ruffians to flipping the other side. And I was thinking about that when you were talking about the angry young men kind of going more towards center, maybe just accepting their plight. If it's going to be like this, then uh, I'll make the best of it. And, you know, Alex definitely does that. He games the system as much as he can. Every chance he gets, they do that. And, you know, 
white men are still doing that to this day. So I think some of the most iconic imagery of this film comes from Alex's Ludovico treatment. Yes. The eye clamps, all of that stuff. And even watching it, like, I'm someone who wears glasses. I've had different tests done on my eyes. And I'm sure, you know, most of us have. And it just, like, never fails to make me cringe and react. Totally. I had eye surgery, like, two weeks ago, and I can feel the stitches healing in my eyeball. And I was thinking that when I was watching this. And also, fun fact, uh, Malcolm McDowell suffered a scratched cornea from that scene and was blinded for a little while. I have a friend who gave birth and then had a scratch cornea, and she said the scratch cornea was worse than giving birth. Jesus. Wow. Um, but I think for that kind of moment, it's it's worth spending a bit of time on. You know, let's, let's talk about hospitals in England in the 1960s. And this is a really interesting time in patient care. It's because this is around when the movement was happening from electroconvulsive therapy or ECT, what we would also know as electroshock therapy, uh, and some other fun terms, which I just learned uh, that were used, chemical convulsions and insulin comas. They were common, especially in the early 1960s, but were falling out of fashion as drug treatments such as antidepressant and antipsychotics became more widespread. Mm-hmm. It's obviously uh, for a lot of people, much better to regularly take a pill than to have scary physical things done to you. Now, ECT felt violent and medieval, and certainly with films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, they came into uh, a bigger conversation around the methods Mm-hmm. of treatment for patients who were in distress. And um, the conversation around patients' rights rose. Uh, the general population was becoming more educated and had more to say about their health. So it went from doctors just saying, we're going to admit you and treat you to, okay, well, let's have a conversation about your treatment. Mm -hmm. That's where this discussion starts to happen. And I think Clockwork Orange kind of shows that nefarious version of these medical practices, um, one that is in line with this kind of shady government happenings. And I think there's a lot of anxiety around control of the individual, which morphs into the individual being able to topple those who are in power. And I think that kind of dichotomy is really interesting. And again, moving from a space where um, a doctor was always in charge and always going to take care of you, uh, whether you liked it or not, to having that conversation. I think we maybe underestimate that power. I think if you look at things like the anti-vax movement, Mm. there's still a lot of anxiety around doctor-related treatment. Um, But I do want to mention that ECT or electroshock therapy, whatever you want to call it, does actually work in some cases. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not to say it doesn't work. It's just not as widely used. And I think there's still a lot of trepidation around using it because of the stigmas around it. But I just wanted to add that it has been shown to work in cases of severe depression and a few other instances. Right. And of course, we're absolutely not uh, against meds for mental illness, uh, doing what you need to do to get you through these really difficult times. There's uh, there's a lot to be said for what medicine can do. And I think what A Clockwork Orange is addressing is, you know, sometimes the damage is done and things like treating people uh, at the time that they're suffering is often too late. Yeah. And I think we're also kind of coming out of a period where, you know, husbands could be like, 
my wife's hysterical. Give her a lobotomy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at like a very extreme end of things. And now again, as I said, it's becoming more of a conversation during this period. And, you know, I think hopefully we're all experiencing that with any medical professional care we get, that mm-hmm. it is an exchange of ideas. They can recommend things. You make the decision that's best for you. And, you know, hopefully you find those resolutions. And, you know, certainly I'm someone who has benefited from going to a doctor and, you know, say, this is the issue I'm having, having a conversation with them and finding a solution. Yeah, as it should be, you know, and until we're at a point where we can address everything that is wrong in society that's making us feel all these ways, you know, that's that's a way bigger problem. It's a lot easier to uh, react to them after it's happening. But to take this topic back further, back way further. I mentioned Pavlov earlier. Mm-hmm. You know Pavlov? Yes. So Ivan Pavlov is Mr. Classical Conditioning and Reflex Response, aka Pavlovian Response. And we're taking this shit all the way back to 1897, which is when he published this theory. And in my intro to psychology classes, we mostly talked about Pavlov in the sense of training a dog. That if you ring a bell, Whenever you feed it, it'll eventually start to salivate when it hears that bell. And what's interesting about that is it's not entirely psychological. It's not just that he'll think of food and he'll get excited on, you know, a mental, emotional level. I mean, maybe he did, but he couldn't tell us as much. But the physiological response to that conditioning, the salivating. And it came up again in a psychology of sexuality class I took in fourth year. I was told that the human sexual response could be conditioned the same way, which is to say the example that they gave, weirdly enough, was garlic breath. And that if your partner eats garlic before you have sex every time, you will eventually start to experience sexual arousal at the smell of garlic breath. That is such an Italian coded thing. I don't remember my teacher being Italian, but I do remember her saying, try it yourself, kids. And I didn't because garlic breath is not something that I need to turn me on. But again, this is something that we tend to think of as psychological. You know, smell is linked to memory. So maybe it's just reminding you of sex, but beyond your conscious mind, your bathing suit parts are responding to that conditioning. And of course, this is the kind of thing that comes up with trauma and PTSD and all that kind of stuff as well. And Pavlov's theory of classical conditioning has led to behaviorist schools of psychology, which has fluctuated in popularity throughout history and has many sub-branches that we won't all get into. But when I think about what happened to Alex and the politicization of his plight reminds me of social contract theory and the idea that the social contract is that we give up some of our natural rights and privileges for the good of larger society. And this school of thought emerged, you know, a long, long time ago. Uh, Thomas Hobbes was a big name in the social contract theory. He wrote a book called Leviathan in 1652 about how to arrive at objective morality and for Hobbes, who was writing during the English Civil War, it was to strike a social contract where an absolute sovereign rules, where there's some conflict that, you know, we can't just duke out between ourselves because the mightiest are going to win and I smash your skull first. And so that is the right and that is the good. No, there has to be somebody, there has to be an ultimate authority that we take it to. And he was of the opinion that society existed to protect humanity from its own nature, that humanity is inherently brutish and selfish. And the only way we can keep that in check is by voluntarily surrendering some of those natural rights to live in peace. And that is the social contract. 
Uh, I might want to take everything in sight, but I won't because we've agreed not to do that for our mutual good. And so I think with Alex, you know, again, as an angry young man, it's just like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't agree to that. And in the speech he gives to his droogies, if you want pretty Polly, you take it. What does the world not provide? And it's so funny because no one stops him. No, not really. He's allowed to kind of skate the system. Mm -hmm. And it's not until he kind of violently harms his own group that they turn on him. Mm -hmm. And that's what leads him to get caught. Exactly. I think it's really interesting that he was clearly a juvenile delinquent and he was clearly in the system from an early age, but that system was too lax for too long and it didn't do the right thing and it put him where he is. So then moving forward to the 18th century, I wanted to mention Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote The Social Contract, where he put forth the concept of the noble savage, the idea that the pre-societal human being operates only on their primitive instinct, and there is no right or wrong. It's only with the emergence of society that morality was attached to right and wrong. If you're hungry, you've got to eat, and whatever means of eating are acceptable because humans are hungry, and hungry humans got to eat. And yet, Rousseau believed that humanity could exist like this in perfect peace and equality, which is... Fuck dude. It was only later that, you know, societal factors like family and private property introduced a mine and yours mentality. And I kind of get that, but all these things just really boil down to the question of like, what is human nature? And if we can understand human nature, we can determine what natural rights should be fundamental and unassailable. And I think that's a topic that is definitely still resonating today more than ever with freedom of speech. This is, I have the right to say what I want. I have the right to say what I want on social media. And if social media tells me no, well, that is my fundamental right to be heard. Oh, right. Freedom from consequence. Yeah, right. Forgot about that. The thing is, like, I remember learning about these schmucks in intro to sociology courses, and they were just so, I felt like they were so embedded in these sexist, macho idea of mankind. Of course, they always said man and never humanity. It was man, man, man. Wanting to eat and fuck and sleep and having the unassailable right to do those things, but also to hunt also to fight because aggression is a trait that was observed and indeed celebrated in men exclusively. And then, of course, we go back to Roe versus Wade, where some members of our population are still struggling with way more fundamental rights than what happens to them if they fucking break into someone's house and murder them in cold blood. Like, it's just another example of these themes still resonate, but things have changed. They have. And I, and I think even now when we look at like a medical practice and, you know, you can go country by country and look at how the medical practice has experimented on racialized communities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of darkness and, you know, this really true and understandable mistrust of institutions. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting to experience Clockwork Orange through like the straight, white, heteronormative, able-bodied man. Mm -hmm. the white man and to kind of see how that system envelops him and then he plays it. And I think through kind of using Alex as this cipher into how we talk about systems is so interesting because he is the prototypical protagonist in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And to 
uh, challenge our notion of what a protagonist is. I mean, we're talking about antiheroes right now, but it challenges our very basic notions of, you know, these quote unquote mankind takes. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier the scene where Alex and his droogs encounter another gang in that dilapidated theater. Mm-hmm. And the other gang is seemingly about to rape this naked young woman. Mm -hmm. And then they have this brawl within the audience section of the theater. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I have two theater degrees. I know how I can say something about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's so much scholarship about theater of violence, violent theater. I've written and I've talked about it before. But I think it's interesting if we examine how the Droog's performativity of who they are versus this kind of suffering through nonviolence that Alex is dealing with. And again, that kind of goes to the mirror narrative that I was talking about earlier. So we start with Alex in control. He is violent. He then goes to the uh, jail and then he goes to the institution and then he comes out and he's not able to be violent. So we're able to see these events kind of like on the flip side of the mirror. Yeah. And, and so it kind of becomes the spectacle of violence versus the experience of violence. Yeah. For me, this is kind of an inverted way of experiencing violence. Usually you see the experience of violence and then it's translated into something else. Here you have that flipped. So you know, Alex doesn't seem to give a fuck about what he does. He's singing in the rain. He's dancing around. He's like fucking body kicking other people. And he like doesn't care. He doesn't mind, doesn't seem to have a scratch on him. Mm-hmm. And then he is getting tortured, assaulted. All of these things are happening to him. And I think it's, again, as we were talking about that experience of Alex just being ultraviolet and not knowing why, and then grappling with having this force in society that we don't understand Mm -hmm. and that we can't control. And it just speaks so much to humanity. And we don't understand these things. We don't understand how someone can get to that place because most of us never would. And again, we have that kind of theatrical removal where it almost doesn't feel real, like that attempt almost rape happens on a stage. Mm-hmm. It's so it, it happens all in wide shots. So we're looking at this incredibly violent, terrifying thing that's happening in again, very long shots and wide takes. And it's like, oh my God, are we gonna watch this happen? Are we gonna are, is this happening? Mm-hmm. And then it gets interrupted with more violence, but we're almost kind of relieved because that young woman gets away. And then this dissociation that happens during the rape when Alex is singing and dancing to singing in the rain. And then the masks. Mm. I found the masks to be so interesting Um, because for me, especially with Alex's mask, that long nose and the half kind of face that he has with his, I was like, it's a Commedia dell'arte mask. A very specific mask. Again, probably might spend too long talking and thinking and writing about theater, but I was like, God, these really feel like Commedia dell'arte masks. And Commedia dell'arte is an Italian comedic theater style that was popular across Europe from the 16th to the 17th century. And a lot of shades of it can be found in things like the Punch and Judy shows and in pantomimes okay. that we still see and are still pretty popular today. So Commedia dell'arte is comprised of stock characters, um, often 
mocking the upper classes. It was a really populist form of theater. And to delineate the characters, again, they were like roving troops across Europe. The masks were a big part of this style. So you could, you know, wander into a town square or into a small theater and be like, I know what's happening based on the masks. Mm -hmm. And Alex's mask, again, that long nose and the kind of half mask is very reminiscent of a character called Il Capitano. So Il Capitano, or the captain, he is a braggart. He is generally not military, but he's going to try and tell you he is. This is due to a lot of war and revolution that was going on in Europe. So there were these, you know, quote unquote soldiers or occasionally real soldiers who would wander around and just be like, I did this, celebrate me. So it was kind of a parody of that. Mm -hmm. Another element of Il Capitano is that he believes his own hype, even if no one else does. Now, I found this part really interesting, and this is from John Rudkin from his book, Commedia dell'arte, an actor's handbook. And this is the plot function of an Il Capitano. His plot function is to be exposed or de masked. He exists to be stripped of his excessive confidence and shown in a moment of panic or humility. Oh my God. So Il Capitano is meant to invoke some kind of sympathy at the end. And Alex, through his extreme swagger, is meant to expose the function of multiple systems and the importance of the cogs in the machine. And I think that's kind of what we see. Maybe it's, I mean, I was looking up Clockwork Orange and Commedia del Arte. I really didn't find anything. Okay. Um, so this is, these are my hot takes. Good for you, Alex right West here. Original. But I think there is something that as Alex's mask is removed as this, you know, notion of who he is is stripped from him. That's all the braggart, the ultra violence, the beating of other people. People, the raping of other people, it's all taken away from him. Mm -hmm. And then he's shown to not have very much until he tries to kill himself. Mm -hmm. Snuff it. Yeah. And then because he survives, I think, then, I mean, I think the scene of the interior minister actually feeding him mm -hmm. is... I think to me, probably the most powerful image yeah. in the film because it says so much. It says, you know, the way the government feeds us when they need us, uh -huh. but they were happy to let him hang out. That's right. And he was happy to bite that hand that feeds when it suits him and not the other way around. Uh, you know, there's power in numbers, obviously. Like, there's a reason he's in a gang and there's a reason that the gang all dresses the same way is because it's to identify them as members of that gang. But, you know, he was safe. And then when he's stripped from that and on his own, everything is different. And I was thinking about when he's getting his therapy and they were showing him clips of war. And I, I didn't clock this when I was watching this um, as a kid, but now I was just kind of like, why would they show him that? You know, like to show a vicious beating or a rape, these are things that polite company don't see unless they have, you know, dark proclivities like us horror fans or if they've experienced some horrible trauma. However, war propaganda everybody was seeing that at the time. And so to have a horrible, uh, retching, adverse reaction to something like that, like, is that really in the government's interest? What if the government sends him to war? And, and then, you know, I think the byproduct of that, that we, we really glom onto narratively is Beethoven's Ninth. But like, war imagery is not to be avoided. And so 
Yeah. Yeah. War is government sanctioned violence. That's right. And so the system was kind of, you know, was really fucking him over. Well, and I think that's a big thing about this film. In, in, when we talk about the violence within this film, there is individual violence and then there is state violence. Mm-hmm. Um, both are presented as shocking. And I think they're weighted pretty equally based on Alex's reactions. To me, I, I was kind of like, what does Clockwork Orange mean to me right now? What is it? What is it saying to me? What is it this? And I was like, it's the individual and systems. It's systems on identity. It was, I was kind of like, oh. And then I was like, I think to me, it's a film about aging. Okay. And I think this kind of individual violence into state sanctioned violence is at some point we age out of quote unquote unaccepted violence and into a state sanctioned violence. Mm. Like the angry young men were like, we're leftists until, oh shit, I got a wife and kids and I got to provide for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. I'm centrist to write yeah. now. Well, that's really interesting because I feel like that speaks to that lost chapter again. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why people are so glommed onto that is because that more accurately reflects the reality of the situation. And I think to have included that kind of epilogue or something within the film would have put too fine a point on it. Yeah. And, and I totally, like, you can watch this film and come away with a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to me that now at, you know, 36, almost 37, I'm like, I feel some of the fight aging out of me. Yeah. So I don't know about you, Alex, but in sitting down to research this, I was like, is this going to be a big, fat, philosophical episode? Like this film has been out for a long time. There is a lot of scholarship on it. It is on the one hand, colossal critical failure. On the other hand, a cult classic um, film version of a classic literary giant. You know, it's got all that going on. And and I think when Faculty of Horror tackles movies such as this, we try to get off the beaten path a little bit and offer our own thing. I, I have a link for an article called Stanley Strangelove for the New Yorker by Pauline Kale. We didn't talk about it, but I think, you know, we did refer to the moral panic and the pearl clutching. So I am going to include it in the show notes. Um, there was some interesting observations. I didn't agree with most of it, but I'll chuck it in there. But ultimately like free will and the human condition, if Alex is robbed of his ability to choose, is he robbed of his humanity? Like I'm not prepared to answer that question. And I I feel like that's a question posed by the book, but it's a question mocked by the movie. Yes. And I I think that's the thing is it kind of sets up all of these big instrumental like moments and like possible narrative terms. And then it makes fun of them. It flips them. It's Mm -hmm. constantly just trying to say like, this is all bullshit this is all man-made bullshit Mm -hmm. like people are like oh my god inflation and like inflation and like our economy things like those are real but they're man-made real that's right and you can pluck a single player grappling with those things and just not address the bigger picture which is the problem and you know i feel like Kubrick is telling us a story where in the future, all of the problems of society have gotten worse. Society is rotting and nobody cares to do anything about it except for these politicians who are vying for power. And Alex becomes a pawn in that, you know, and by then it's too late. The damage is done. Alex's victims remain dead and he is apparently beyond redemption. I do want to mention that because there is a lot of violence against women in this film, and we haven't talked a lot about it, 
And I didn't really have any of that in my notes. And I was thinking about it and I was like, because in a shitty way, it doesn't matter because this film to me is so much about toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. and this masculine need to control and to kind of be the quote unquote leader in anything, whether it's Alex and the Droogs or the doctor or the politicians, they're all so desperate to be in control that nothing else matters. And I think the film works to skewer them because they show that each kind of pillar of power, whether it's the Droogs, the Ludovico Institute, or the government, they're all fucking pawns. Yeah. Like none of it works. No. None of it works the way it is intended to work. No. I would say it doesn't negate the violence against women that happens within this film. It is shocking. It is upsetting. It is intended to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in, in a more subtle way, it points a finger at the fallacy of a white heteronormative male-dominated society. That's right. And we've talked about this before, like specifically in our Martyrs episode, is that, yes, like there is misogyny in this film. There is violence against women. It is in service to the plot. It is shown in an artistic way uh, that is humiliating, but Alex is deeply humiliated. And like, again, going back to that Pauline Kael article that I wasn't going to go too far into, she kind of gives me a real boys will be boys vibe where she's kind of like, you know, they need to release their energies and they release it upon these women that are so humiliated, like Alex's victims are so dehumanized. And then, of course, there's the Maloko milk bar that we didn't really talk to where, you know, the furniture and indeed the the taps, the administration of jugs, the milk jugs. Thank you. are women dehumanized. And I remember seeing that and feeling that's not shocking. That feels like the natural progression of where we are today. Like it's business as fucking usual. This is like our current dystopian future. Because Trump won and not Hillary. That's right. Absolutely. Think that would be happening in Hillary's Britain? Alex's whole ordeal is essentially a waste of time. It takes him full circle back to being a sadistic little predatory fuck. And maybe, just maybe, what the film doesn't tackle is that maybe that's what we're raising little boys to be. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should be more concerned with that instead of fixing him after the fact. Because all of our attempts to thwart or intellectualize or politicize that fact are ultimately fucking pointless. It's interesting because around the time of we were all getting our vaccines and then there was more reports of breakthrough cases and this and that. And unfortunately, I don't remember like which podcast it was and which incredible scientist was saying this. Uh, But one of the smart political podcasts I listened to in the States was saying this, that uh, in America, they are so, and I think everywhere, especially in Western society, we're so used to a silver bullet. Mm. This is a thing it's going to, you've got a headache, take this. You've got this, you take that, do this, do that. And so when something doesn't work, it's like, well, then the whole fucking thing is bullshit. Doctors don't know anything. I don't trust authority. And I think there is a bit of that anxiety within this film Mm -hmm. um, that they were so confident. Again, the scene where they basically dehumanize Alex, which is such an interesting moment um, after he's had the treatment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, you know, he's getting beat up. He's got this beautiful woman, you know, naked in front of him Mm -hmm. and he can't do anything. Mm -hmm. And here's this person that we have seen do the most heinous, reprehensible things. And we're like, wow, he really can't do that anymore. Yeah. He's, you know, like a eunuch now almost. Yeah. Which is what I was thinking kind of with that article about, you know, like the women and the victims. And it's like, okay, how do you humiliate women? 
you strip them, you rape them. How do you humiliate men? You render them impotent. You castrate them. You make them such that they can't defend themselves. I feel like those barbs went both ways. I do too. Yeah. And I think the violence is meant to be shocking. But it barely is because this is an old ass film. <laughs> We've seen worse. On that cheery note, we may as well laugh at it. We may we as may well as laugh well. at it all. Because the film is laughing at it. It is. It truly, like, it intentionally is. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that it's this big, heady novel and Kubrick's like, and it's pretty absurd. Yeah. And I really, like, again, I went from, like, having this thing of, like, clockwork orange is this dangerous film while so respecting and i was like i'm sure it has something great to say now i'm coming to it and like oh it's a satire that uses horror methodology to say it that got crucified as if it was saying something and fucking jokes on those critics right Mm -hmm. you played right into his fucking hands yep Love it. Love to see it. That is how you upend a system. That is how you clockwork an orange. (laughs) I do. So that's our episode for this month, guys. I don't know what's happening in your world, but in Toronto, we just like hit a switch and it's summer. Uh huh. We just skipped spring entirely, and it's hot. And you know what summer means to me? Fun times. It means fun times, and it means blockbusters. Ooh, we do tend to handle the big boys in the summertime, don't we? I like to think we do, and I think we're going to have some fun in this next episode. Yes. So historically, our summer episode, a little bit fun, a little bit summery, a little bit blockbustery. We are going to remain in horror territory while also dabbling in the immensely popular and lucrative world of blockbuster movies based on comic books. And comic book superheroes. So we are going to tackle in June Blade and Constantine. Yeah. You know, I've been pretty absent from the discourse of the Marvel everything. I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but I'm kind of, I fell behind and now I'm just so intimidated by this whole MCU that I feel like it's too late for me. And now, you know, Sam Raimi has directed Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and... Uh, that breaks my brain. I can't we're going to talk about that. it on our Patreon, so... Yes, uh, we are. But for our next episode, we're going to take it back to a simpler time where these uh, these movies were just kind of standalone and we picked two that are kind of spooky kind of gothy and uh i kind of love in spite of all their warts you know what i think it's going to be a finger looking good time Ooh! so until the next time we meet at the corova milk bar office hours are closed (laughs) 